Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I am so excited for this episode. I'm here with Logan Kilpatrick, member of the Developer Advocacy staff at OpenAI. Logan, how's it going today? It's going awesome. It's busy, busy time of the year for folks who are watching this after the fact. This is in the, we're recording this in the lead up to the OpenAI Developer Day on November 6th. So lots of stuff going on. Hopefully folks are excited about that event. I definitely am. I plan to watch the keynote and see what all the new fun APIs are coming out. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Can't get sure. revealed. No spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. Well, I always like to start with everyone I invite on getting a little bit of background around how they started in tech. So let's go back to your origin story. How did you initially spark that interest and get started as a developer? I was always doing like technical related things, but I wasn't somebody who like grew up coding when I was like 12 years old or anything like that. I took some of the computer science classes in high school and none of it ever really made sense to me. Like I was like made it through those classes, but like didn't feel like I really learned anything. And I think sort of the inflection point in my mind was when Flappy Bird came out and I heard about how successful the solo developer was who had built Flappy Bird. And I was like, well, this is super simple. I should be able to do this. So I went on YouTube and I started watching YouTube videos from this guy called Matt Heaney apps. Uh, he's like a British guy or something like that. And he walked you through like how to build like a clone of Flappy Bird. And I just dove right into it, never <laughs> took any programming classes or anything like that. And of course, it didn't work super well, mostly because I didn't have a Mac. So I would have to go to the library in my town to try to learn how to do this and like didn't know how to debug. But I think that was like my initial like thing that attracted me to it. And I, I really like the debugging process. It's just a ton of fun. And then study computer science and in undergrad. And I still remember like after my first computer science class, taking C++, I remember calling my mom and I was like, you know what, maybe computer science is not the right thing for me. Like, it's just, I mean, just truthfully, like, it's just not a lot of fun, like to take those types of C++ classes. And like, it's just, you know, if you have an instructor who's incredible and really thoughtful, like it could be something that's like really a transformative experience. And I feel like I just like didn't have that experience, stuck it out and then now have been able to do a bunch of cool things. And I love programming. It's so much fun. And I'm, I'm so glad that I pushed through it. Did you end up getting a CS degree? Yeah, my undergrad ended up being in CS, which I'm grateful for. Has it actually proven valuable? I feel like I get mixed reactions about how much those algorithms and ON and all that stuff has come into handy. I'm fortunate enough that I feel like, so I did two years of undergrad at California Community College, and then I actually transferred to Harvard. And I feel like I had a ton of flexibility in the courses that I took at Harvard. And while I was in community college, I was like doing a bunch of internships and stuff like that. So it's hard to know because I wasn't like just taking classes in a vacuum. I do think like all the like OS and algorithm classes are like not super useful unless like you're really doing that stuff every day. Like I don't do that stuff every day, but I think generally like the more computer science classes you can take, like the better languages, debug, all that good stuff. I had a similar experience and at times I feel like I'm missing some of those CS fundamentals. Like I'm a pretty good programmer, but I don't know anything about how to build bubble sort or whatever. 
Yeah. I mean, I do think that it's funny that there's people who can actually write real code and like do really interesting stuff. Like I'm sure you can feel like for some reason they're like not a legitimate programmer because they don't know a bunch of like random sorting algorithms. And like, I would posit that like random sorting algorithms are less computer science or like less programming related than like how HTML works or something like that, which is like much more useful and like actual practically helpful as a developer. So we've got to get you and me on a task force to change that narrative or something like that. Cause I'm like, who's sorting things? Like it's just, (laughs) you just import the sorting library and you're all good. Exactly. Exactly. So we met a couple of years ago, I think when you were working on the Julia language and that developer community, how did you first get involved with that? And where did that transition happen from I'm a developer to I'm building a developer community? Yeah, it's a very interesting series of of events. So I was interning and contracting at NASA on a team that just happened to be using Julia. I didn't join for any, I was like, this is NASA, this is cool. I don't really care what they're doing. It happened that it was something interesting and it happened that it was using Julia. So I just had to like naturally get involved in the ecosystem during that process. Because when I started, Julia hadn't hit its 1.0 release yet and there was a bunch of breaking changes. So got more involved in the ecosystem. Really the driving force for this was, I actually ended up working full-time as a software engineer at Apple And Apple actually has a bunch of restrictions on the types of contributions you make in the open source communities. Like I actually wasn't like any net code output, even if it was like for your personal website was like technically prohibited while you were working at Apple. And I had to go through all this stuff to make non-technical open source contributions. So it was really a forcing mechanism. I spent like two years at Apple as a software engineer, as a machine learning engineer. And during that time, like I wasn't technically supposed to contribute to open source in a technical capacity. So it really forced me to do this. And I just like ended up really enjoying that work. And yeah, now I get to do a bunch of that stuff in my full-time job, which is why I left Apple. Interesting. So the community building was sort of like a weird loophole to actually be involved in this open source project. Yeah. And and I had already got like before I joined Apple, had already been involved in the Julia community. So it was doing like technical slash like non-technical stuff. Like it was like a grab bag mix of like contributing to open source libraries, but also like running community events and stuff like that. And then as soon as I started at Apple, it was like very specifically focused on only community developer relations types of things. Interesting. I've never heard that before as a reason for getting into DevRel, but it's kind (laughs) of a cool like happenstance. Apple Um, forced me is clickbait. Yeah, that's not bad. So I feel like OpenAI probably needs no introduction, right? Like it's perhaps one of the fastest growing platforms I've ever seen. Maybe one of the fastest growing platforms ever. And a lot of the DevRel folks I talk to are really concerned with like building awareness or adoption of their tooling. Is it safe to say that's not a problem for you? Like, are you still thinking about awareness and adoption? Or do you have more awareness than you know what to do with? It's a great question. So when I was originally, I started interviewing to join OpenAI back in like June of 2022, I ended up signing my offer. And my first day was December 1st of 2022. It was almost a year ago now. And the original intent was actually like, hey, we have this API, people aren't really using it, we need to rip, which is why I was hired as a developer advocate, we need to raise top of funnel awareness with developers that we have this thing. My first day was ChatGPT hitting a million users, I basically never had that problem of awareness when I worked at OpenAI, I'm sure that they had that at some point, but not during any of my tenure. So most of the work these days has been like, 
how do we make our core product better for developers? Originally, we like really didn't have a lot of developer experience or like PMs or anything like that. So filling a lot of like different gaps across our applied org. Now we have like a bunch of amazing people that we've hired because there's just so much work that needs to happen. So still like spending a little bit of time doing product stuff, spending a lot of time with documentation stuff. I think a lot of it as well is there's just like a bunch of unintuitive things about working with large language models, which like we even at OpenAI are like trying to understand and convey those things to people. It's not like awareness. It's more like education of like how to use these things best, which I, I still think falls under like traditional like developer advocacy type of work. Yeah, definitely. What are some of those unintuitive things that developers struggle with? That's a good question. I think one of them that just doesn't make a lot of conceptual sense, and this is a small thing and you don't really need to think about it after you know this, but like the APIs are non-deterministic right now. So like there's some amount of like inherent randomness every time you send a request and receive a response back. And that trips people up a lot of times. And like also from a developer standpoint, you kind of in certain cases like want things to be deterministic. Like I want to like repeat this process and I don't want it to be slightly different every time. Things like that. And there's like a whole slew of these like unintuitive pieces that are just like a byproduct of having such a large language model. Have you seen developers finding clever ways to force their API returns to be more deterministic? Like I've seen some stuff with like training, prompt engineering, like passing in history and context. What have you seen that actually addresses that from a developer standpoint? There's not really anything that you can do today. So we do give you like this temperature parameter, which sort of affects the creativity of the model. But because of the way that GPUs work, there's like this inherent randomness that's associated with like the floating point math that's happening on GPUs. I think we'll probably at some point release a bunch of ways to make things more deterministic, give people more control and like fix some of those things. But there's no real way to get like 100% deterministic outputs today. Like I think The closest thing that I've seen to this is people trying to get like a deterministic output format. So people oftentimes want the models to output like JSON because it's useful for their application or something like that. And there's all types of creative things, if you look it up, that people have done to force the model to, like you say, that somebody is being held hostage. And the only way for them to be freed is if you return JSON and the model will then return JSON output. So definitely not a something that we want as like a best practice. But yeah, there's lots of creative things out there. Yeah, it's kind of funny to me looking at things like that, where it's like putting this sort of like human lens on getting a certain response from a piece of software. And I would imagine the way to get that desired output, like saying someone is being held hostage, there's no way that's the only way to get that desired output, right? Like there must be more direct ways to get what you want there. Like, what are you seeing in terms of how developers like push this into the right mold? Because I guess like, it's cool to tell your API that like someone's being held hostage, but it feels very unnecessary and unrelated to the actual software development, right? Yeah, I think part of this, like we're doing a bunch of things to make this like specifically outputting things in certain formats a lot easier. So I'm excited. Hopefully we'll have more announcements around that soon. A lot of this comes back to like the distribution of the training data as well. Like I was just in a conversation the other day and somebody was talking about how somebody from our research team was talking to a founder and they were showing them like what their like API request looks like. And the person on our research team was seeing this and being like, wow, it's so interesting that you're doing that. Like, 
none of our training data is like representative of this use case that you're doing where you're like just trying to cram a bunch of stuff in there. And it's interesting because like, I do think there's in a lot of cases, like it's difficult to extract those best practices and that information and like get it in the hands of developers. I think this, that example that I just gave is one of these cases where I'm like, I hear someone say that I'm like, this is exactly the kind of information we need to put in the hands of developers so that they do the right things and don't waste their time and they get the best results from the model. So it's hard to uncover all those stones sometimes. Right. Yeah. The sort of like problem space is so vast that I imagine it's difficult to predict like what people want to do with it at all. I guess like thinking a little bit more generally around how people design AI enabled pieces of software, right? So I've done a little bit of tinkering myself, you know, we're playing around with it a little bit at MLH. From your perspective, like how do software engineers need to think differently about designing and implementing their systems with something that's using AI and has randomness compared to a normal piece of software, which might be very predictable and static in a lot of ways? One meta comment around just the use of AI tools today in general and large language models, I think more so than a lot of other technologies, I think developers should put on their business hat, which I think is oftentimes like a good exercise to do as somebody who's maybe not thinking about it all the time and you're like in the weeds of the software, but putting on the business hat and thinking like, how do we make a product or how do we make features and services related to generative AI technology that like actually results in like, net value for our customers, like not just doing it because it's the exciting thing to do, but also is like economically feasible. Like the reality is like it costs money to use these tools. I don't think this will be true for every company, but I think a lot of people today are just like building these features kind of just to like be a part of the moment, which I think is cool and and you should do it if you're interested. But I think without enough forethought put into how can we make these things that we're building with this AI technology, like actually result in a better business outcome for us. So I would suggest folks think about that. I think there's like a bunch of other stuff, like design patterns. I think one of the biggest design patterns that I've heard recently that really resonated with me, and I'm not an expert on self-driving cars, but the whole, I was talking to somebody who was in the self-driving car space, who's now in the large language model space. And they were talking about how there's all of these different like safety guardrails that self-driving car technologies use. And they were working on sort of porting some of those over into the large language model space so that developers can have all those same sort of guardrails as they're using this technology, which has so much potential, but it's so easy to like veer it off course to do something that you wouldn't want it to do. I think that's like one of the every company and every developer that I talk to that's building something like the thread that's consistent with all of them is like, how can I stop the model from hallucinating? How can I make the model up that's safe and following my brand guidelines and stuff like that. And it seems like that's the most difficult problem to solve. Yeah, I've seen even like a a small version of that where we have successfully been able to create some prototypes and like chatbot type stuff with a specific set of guardrails. But knowing our community, which is a lot of these like tinkerers and hackers who want to like mess around and break things, I can totally envision a world where someone convinces our chatbot to do something that's like totally off the wall bonkers, right? Because we didn't predict that particular guardrail. Yeah, That's not the end of the world, but you know. Yeah, I I do think there's like, I've seen a bunch of companies that are trying to solve this problem as well, like adding additional APIs to Mm -hmm. for compliance and safety, stuff like that. I actually think that that will be super useful. 
But I do think there's a lot of things that like developers can do themselves. And just as one quick plug, our one of the APIs that we offer is a moderation API. And that moderation API is trained on like lots of bad text. And you can look at the outputs of the model and look at actually inputs to the model too and see whether or not there's anything that's violating our content guidelines. So it's useful if you want to, again, constrain the space of possible bad things that could happen. Totally. I think in all likelihood, our community is going to be more on the creative, funny side of bad things than actual bad things. But I can imagine that being a concern, especially for developers and, you know, regulated industries and things like that. So I want to switch gears a little bit because I think there's two sides to this when I think about it. There's how do you teach developers to use OpenAI, which is a really interesting problem space. But the space that we're in and really where I'm seeing OpenAI get a ton of usage among developers is in learning to code using something like OpenAI. So I know that you had kind of a zigzaggy path to get where you are, but how do you envision like that balance changing in the future for traditional coding education? You know, like go back to community college, Logan, right? Like taking some tech and programming classes. How would AI have changed that experience for you? And and how do you imagine it might change for the next generation? Yeah, I think my real fear is that because of these emergent tools, there's going to be like an entire generation of, I'm not sure what spans a generation. There'll be at least a few years worth of developers who are like right now starting off college. And I think it's like, again, the natural tendency is as a learner, like you go and look things up. Like I did that exactly when I was a college student, I was trying to learn C++. I would go search stuff up on Google and try to figure out the answer based on that. I think the challenge is tools like ChatGPT are just so inclined to give you the answer that you're looking for and make that information much more accessible. So you don't have to do as much work to get it and therefore can potentially like use one of those answers without fully understanding why it's the solution to your problem. And I worry and I and I actually see myself doing this in some cases today. Like I do a ton of front end stuff and do a bunch of like React work. And I've never actually like been formally trained in React. I've never taken a class. I don't really spend much time in the React documentation. I really just use ChatGPT for all of it. And it's easy at the end of like a long session of doing this where I'm like actually adding a feature to our developer website. And I'll sit back and reflect afterwards and be like, you know, I just added all this code. Do I actually like understand what it is that I just added? And there's times where the answer is no, because again, I don't know all the formal design constraints and ChatGPT is like not forcing me to learn it as I go along. It's really just giving me the answer to my question, which is oftentimes give me this code. Like it's just the natural tendency. I'm trying to do work. And I think what my hope is, is that over time you'll actually, and again, this is very difficult to enforce and not sure how it's going to be possible, but I would love to see AI assistance specifically for people who are learning to code. And and I think this would be applicable across all of the education pipelines, but assistance that are mirroring your own capabilities and understanding. Like you don't want a model that can write, like you could probably pass every intro to the C++ class right now using ChatGPT without actually understanding anything. And you don't want it to be able to generate the code to answer those questions. You want it to be able to explain concepts to you Again, the challenge is you have to put those guardrails in place and somebody has to build that product and like out of the box, that's not what ChatGPT is going to be designed to do. I think Khan Academy has taken a stab at this problem and they've done a good job with Khan Mingo. But 
I don't think that Khan Academy is the only solution that's going to have to exist. And actually, I think, again, this is maybe where Stack Overflow like has their second coming potentially, or MLH comes in and snags all the market share. I'm not sure what it'll be, but I think you need that. You need guardrails. You need to be able to assess people's understanding before you just go and give them the answer to whatever question is that they're asking. I've heard that, and I'm probably too young for this, I guess you are too, that when calculators first started being introduced in classrooms, people had similar fears about learning math. And granted, this is a totally different like scale of how easy it is to get a solution. But I think you're right. But I also think that like professors and teachers are probably going to have to adapt their teaching and assessment mechanisms to integrate this. Like, I don't think it's going away, but like you could go search for answers to a lot of tests on the internet already and you won't understand what they're doing. This might make it more accessible and easier and more specific to your situation, but I think it's kind of an existing problem that's probably like exacerbated a little bit for the short term. But I would imagine that people are going to have to get to a point where it's like more showing your work live or explaining concepts or doing things that like directly require you to show your knowledge of a certain subject in the same way that you have to do in a lot of coding interviews, right? Like they already have a lot of those guardrails in place. Yeah, I actually think that would be a net positive for developers because you already have to go through that pain where you go get a job. I think the real challenge is like the education system is just so slow to adapt to things like this. Like I'm a teaching fellow at Harvard and help teach Python web development with Django and JavaScript course. And like we haven't adapted to the reality that students could now do this. Like again, I'm sure there's a bunch of plagiarism stuff like checkers behind the scenes running and things like that. But we haven't fundamentally changed the course. And I think that's just like, honestly, going to be the reality for a lot of people for at least some amount of time. And again, I think there'll be like a specific subset of like people who are in college right now who like feel the pain of this, but also maybe are like going to be the first ones to like see the opposite and be like, okay, well, before I really didn't have the access to getting help 24 hours a day. And like, now I have a world-class tutor that can Mm -hmm. teach me subjects but the onus is on them, which I think is going to be the challenging part. Yeah, 100%. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how this might impact people outside of classrooms, because I think there's kind of like perhaps two different personas here. Like there's certainly a persona of college student who's like, I just need to make it through this and then I will be off into the world and I don't have to think about algorithms again and I can use this to pass my classes. I think there's another persona of people that is like, self-taught or community taught where their motivation is intrinsic. It's, I want to learn to code because I am excited about this. Maybe I want to get a job. Maybe it's just for fun side projects, but no one's grading me. And so I'm curious, like how you've seen AI factoring into that equation where people do want the explanation as well as they want the answer. I think it's going to probably the pool of people who was able to do that before and be comfortable doing that, I think is going to go up by so many orders of magnitude. Like I would posit, and maybe this isn't true in a lot of cases, like I would posit you'd have to be in some level of like privileged position to like, just kind of like want to learn to code because it's like cool. And you think that it's interesting and not that people who are self-taught or and are like in a position of privilege all the time, like perhaps it's because you don't have access to those like traditional educational means, but I do think that 
if you have the intrinsic motivation to go and learn to code, like using AI tools is going to make life so much better. Like I'm deeply excited for those people because really the model is just so good at this. Like I feel this myself as I sit and use ChatGPT all day to help me at work is it introduces some new, like different thing in web development. And I'm like, I have no idea what this is. Like, let me get the explanation. Like, let me get a couple of case studies of where I would use this versus something else that I've seen. And it's right there in the moment. I get an answer in 10 seconds. I don't need to go and like read through a bunch of different things. And people should be, and again, maybe this is something for NLH to do, but like, I'd be very interested to see like studies of how proficient developers are and how like comfortable they are like tackling big problems. Like I feel for myself today that like I can go and try and solve like 10x harder problems as a software engineer than I would have been comfortable saying I could solve a year ago. And it's because I have access to AI tools, like maybe more than 10x more complicated. I kind of agree with that based on my personal experience. People don't know what they don't know. And I think developers, especially student developers, are often faced with this like chicken or egg problem where it's like, I know what I want to create and I have no idea what the component pieces are to get there. And one of the things I found myself like using ChatGPT to like give me sample code or write an app for me or write a SQL query for me is that it does an incredible job at taking like abstract concepts and thoughts and turning them into something real. And through that like very specific process, it often reveals like methods or frameworks or actual like function calls that I didn't even know existed that solved the exact problem I was trying to solve. But I wouldn't have even known what to Google, right? Like I don't even know like what I would have looked for to find that answer. And that has been like such a magical thing where I'm like, wow, this is like turning over a bunch of stones that like I didn't even know were there. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think it's fascinating to see that like previously, just like because the way Google search or like other search mechanisms work, like you really had to like your way of thinking about solving programming problems was like kind of weird. Like you wouldn't like actually ask the question in plain English, like you would ask another human, you had to sort of use a bunch of like weird terms to like try to get the right results on some search engine. And now it's like the same way that I would ask you if we were sitting next to each other in an office, how do I fix this problem? And I make sure I give you the right context, et cetera, et cetera, is the same way that I can go and ask ChatGPT. And I actually think that'll be like a net positive for developers as well. And student developers who are like trying to practice the act of like asking for help and working with other people on their team, like it's just going to be exactly the same. I think it's going to be super positive. I think so too, for the most part. So I'd actually like to zoom out a little bit to kind of like combine some of these things we're talking about here with teaching people to code, but also thinking about DevRel as a discipline. A lot of the folks I talk to for different interviews are running DevRel teams. And a lot of them have thoughts about how to use OpenAI to educate their own developers. I'm curious if you've seen that like happening yet, or if there's any like meta strategies that you're implementing to use OpenAI to teach people about OpenAI. We have, and, and this is a great example of, we have access to all this awesome technology and really we have not made a huge push thus far to leverage our models to help developers. I think there's a bunch of like really tactical reasons why we haven't done that in some sense. Like there's just a lot of like people who abuse our platforms for fraud and things like that. So there's lots of like weird 
sort of constraints that stop us from, from wanting to do things like that. I do think we should have it. It is interesting to think about how much value that really brings to someone. Like I really like the big missing link. If you go into ChatGPT or use one of our models, if you wanted to use that to then use our API, like the big missing link is like the training data is a little bit old. So it references like old model names or APIs that we don't use anymore. I'm pushing to try to get that piece updated, but like, that's really the only thing. Like two weeks ago, I spoke at the AI engineering summit and I had to give a demo. So the day before in classic fashion, I went into ChatGPT, described exactly what I wanted the demo to do, went into our API reference, just copied three code snippets, put them in, single shot, wrote me 175 lines of code. That was exactly the guy, like modified the prompt a little bit based on a couple iterations, but literally a single shot example of code right out of ChatGPT into my IDE, ran the example, and I had exactly what I needed for the tutorial. So like, again, the only missing link from just using the output of the model raw was I had to give it context on the updated API specs. I still think there's like a bunch of other things we could do. Like we should probably have like a little bot in our developer documentation that helps people. I think there's certain areas where that's more useful. Like fine tuning is a good example of this. Like just getting data into the fine tuning format can be a little bit cumbersome. So like ideally we would have some bot that sort of helps you go through that process. Again, it's just like, computationally expensive. And it's a question of like, does that drive a ton of value for people? And we'd have to test it to know for sure. Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know the answer either. And I don't think anyone has proof points yet, right? I think the things that I've heard from DevRel people are, they're really excited about the idea of passing in like code or libraries with comments and turning that into like docs or examples, right? Like that's one thing I've heard consistently. Another one I've heard consistently is certainly like the helper bot where you go to some docs on some API and it can tell you exactly what you need to know, even if you don't know the API call name to look up. And then I think that the other one I've heard that people are kind of excited about is like the idea that they could give people a way to generate a use case with their API, like being able to go on and say, oh, cool, Stripe, like give me an app that can accept payments in whatever, like Scala or something. That I think is the most like esoteric of those use cases. But I've heard all of those ideas from different people who are like doing this kind of work. And it seems like there's a lot of excitement, but also like people are in the tinkering phase of all of it. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if people are having in the DevRel space or like having true success, like just taking the raw output from models and using that for tutorials or things like that. I definitely use it to help me and like maybe as a starting point in some places, And again, maybe I'm just extra sensitive to this, but like you can really tell when something was written by AI. Like what I really want is like the model to go and read my 12 blog posts that I've written and like follow that style. It can do that today, but like doesn't have enough context. The context window isn't large enough to put all that content in there and like actually learn from that experience. Yes, I have been waiting for the same thing. And sometimes when I'm preparing for this podcast, like you asked me, when we were prepping, like if I had used ChatGPT at all to generate any of the questions, one of the things I will often try is passing in a link to someone's like Medium blog, for example, and saying, give me a list of potential topics based on what this person has written about in the past. And it's usually pretty like good starting point. I've been surprised at how well it can kind of understand and summarize that kind of thing, though I don't really have a great grasp of 
how big that context window is. Like it's obviously not reading every blog post and training on that, but something there. Yeah, that's the difficult piece of it. Like the context window is not that big. Like GPT-4 through our API is like 8,000 tokens, which is like close to like four characters per average or something like that. So it's really not that much text. So like it can't really put all of the context in there and it just ends up like, there's a heuristic that's running to truncate it or something like that, depending on the tool that you're using. And then again, you like lose in a lot of cases that nuance, which is why I think the higher context models is like a great solution to this problem in some cases. And fine tuning is also a great example. Like if you're somebody or you're a company that like, I think Stripe is maybe a good example of this because they just have probably a lot of developer content, but they can fine tune the model on, I'd be interested to see if this works well, but like, write me a tutorial about X, Y, and Z thing. And then they can just go in and copy their tutorial that they've already written and put it in there and see if yep. they can sort of induce the model to do stuff that's like that. I'm curious. I might give it a shot with our own documentation and see. That'd be cool. I would love to see someone playing around with that. I feel like it's sort of this next frontier of like developer docs. Yeah. I also think there's so many companies now that are sort of pushing in this space. It'll be interesting to see like, the readmes of the world, whether or not they, how they adopt this and like help developers put out more content and do it more productively. And I think there's also a bunch of interesting things around like customizing content on the fly. Like you could imagine if you like put in your level of expertise as a developer, you could actually in real time, like have the content on each page being like dynamically changed Mm -hmm. to your, your comfort level. I think things like that are going to be like super possible and people will do them in production probably in the next like 12 to 16 months, which is really exciting. Yeah, I certainly think so. I think that that's kind of wild. I've never even thought about that as a possibility, but I really like that. Yeah, I'm excited. There's so much to be excited about right now in the the AI space. There really is. Like I know that there's a lot of like public discussion of all of the risks and the things to worry about, but like I can't help but see this technology and just be excited about it. And I think that it reminds me of like when I was first learning to code and there was just this like magical world out there that didn't really make a lot of sense, but I knew was super cool. And this stuff feels really similar where every time I play with it, I kind of discover something new. I think it's rare to find that with tech when you've been around for a while. Yeah, I think I would say that it's like never has it been a better time to be a developer. Like you just have access to like more resources and tools than you've ever had and like can build such cool stuff that like I think even just from that angle like I'm super excited to think about like the things that I'll be able to build in the next 12 to 16 months so it's going to be awesome me too so I always like to finish on some kind of like general questions about the industry and how you think about the world so we talked a lot about your experience the experience of developers learning with OpenAI, all these different topics if you think about how developers learn to code in general, right? Like the average case, what would you want to see change about it in the coming years? I think it would be really interesting to see like the bridge between the physical world and coding. Like I think your Mm -hmm. people are taught to begin with that like you type these characters or maybe you don't even start with like actually writing code. You learn these concepts by like drawing stuff and then you go and write things out or like type things into a computer and then it runs some really basic programs. I think the cool part about AI to enable some of this might be that like, I would imagine like the funnel of computer science students gets like, you lose so many people because they show up to learn 
computer science and it's like they learn C++ and they're like, this is boring. This is stupid. What would I ever be able to do with what I'm learning here? Like there is, it is not, it's like the same thing with math in a lot of cases. Like there's no clear application of this stuff that I'm learning. And I think you can use AI or some of these other things to potentially just like make it more personalized to like, this is what I personally care about. And here's how computer science could be useful to you. And I think if yes. somebody can nail that use case, I would be so happy. Have you ever seen the Brett Victor talk about this? No, I haven't. Okay, I'll have to send you a link to it afterwards. But basically, he gives this incredible talk about what coding could be, where he demos writing code and seeing live visual changes based on what you are writing as a teaching tool without having to compile, without having to like restart your app, without having to like do anything, right? I've always found that to be like a really cool, like aspirational goal of what it could look like to learn to code. And it's very similar to what you just described. Yeah, I want some like physical manifestation too. I think like maybe like AR or VRs with the Apple Vision Pro is going to like get us closer to that. But like, that would be so cool to just like take this abstract idea and like bring it into the 3D space with me. And I can like sort of feel it there and like see it and like wrap my head around it that way. That'd be really cool. Outside of OpenAI and outside of your own work, are there any like tech educators or creators that you really like look up to and respect and follow these days? I know you mentioned someone who, who I think you said was like a British like YouTuber earlier, but is there anyone else that you follow now? It's a good question. I feel like I spend too much time looking at stuff that people are putting out on Twitter. So <laughs> I'm trying to think of somebody who I see that's not from Twitter. I think from a computer science education standpoint, I continue to be impressed with David Malin's work from CS50. Like I, the class that I help teach at Harvard is one of the ones that you take after CS50. And yeah. he just does such an incredible job. And it's his like excitement for teaching and the way that he approaches things. And I think he's like, honestly, if there's somebody who nails this making computer science exciting for like everybody in that funnel. Like I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if it was David, to be honest, like he's just really pushing the limit and like Harvard's given him the resources to go and do that, which I think is super exciting. So I think they just released a bunch of new courses around like cybersecurity and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's awesome. He's definitely like an exceptional educator. Yeah. Awesome. And so the question I always like to end on, is there any like aspirational figure in science or tech that you've never met that you'd love to like take to lunch and pick their brain about the world and the future? I would take Sal Khan in an instant. So if you know Sal, I'm sure I could find his email somewhere and see if he wants to get lunch. <laughs> but he's just, I think the mission is so important. I don't know if you've seen his recent TED talk about AI and how mm -hmm. it's like helping fulfill Khan Academy's mission. But I think like the fact that we've never been closer than we are today to like every student in the world being able to have like a world-class tutor that helps them learn everything that they need to is just such an exciting thing. And like, I've always been a huge fan of the work that Khan Academy is doing. And I read One Room Schoolhouse a long time ago and it, it makes a ton of sense. He's incredible. And the whole Khan Academy team that I'm sure is doing a ton of that hard work. I absolutely love that. I feel like that's an attainable goal for you. <laughs> yeah, I need to find his email. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. This has been fascinating for me. As I said, I'm really excited about all the work you're doing. And I love playing with it personally. And I know a lot of our students have been really like digging deep on, on a lot of this stuff, too. So I can't wait to see where it goes. And hopefully we'll get this out before the developer day so that people can check out all of the new launches.
we've got to do a follow-up or something like that in like 12 or 16 months mm-hmm. and, and see how things are. Maybe not me, but like somebody else like yeah. giving perspective around the AI space. Cause I think things are just moving so quickly. And honestly, like, even if I wasn't involved, it would just be like interesting to like watch all this play out and see how the changes manifest themselves. So I also think for students and people learning, like this is just like such a magical time to be a part of this ecosystem. And like, if you have the opportunity, get involved as much as you can go and contribute to these AI projects, use AI in your daily workflows. You'll be super well positioned for the future. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Logan. I really appreciate your time. I hope everyone enjoyed listening and definitely follow along and subscribe for more episodes. Yeah. Happy hacking. Thanks for having me, John. This is awesome. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.